All right. Good morning, church. How you doing? All right. It's exciting to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope you are too. If you don't know me, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. It's a huge honor for me uh, to get to serve you in that way. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is where we'll be uh, this morning. If you've been here, you know that we have been working our way through the gospel of John. And John is one of those books out of the 66 books that we get of God's word uh, in the Bible. The gospel of John is maybe my favorite. It's an incredible picture of Christ, and that's really what we've been seeing is really Christ laid out as plainly for who he is uh, there. And the most important thing about uh, Christ is what God says about him, right? And so that's what we get in God's word. And if uh, in John chapter 9, uh, we see another incredible story uh, about Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, as the, prophet, the, pro- the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament that would come and provide salvation uh, for his people. And we see it through a miracle. And this miracle is uh, one of Jesus's, uh, in my opinion, best miracles uh, it is his first uh, time uh, in the book of John where he takes a blind man and he, re- he basically gives them their sight. And this is a, a miracle, really the only miracle in the Bible that was reserved specifically for the Messiah. And so you'll never see in the Bible anyone else uh, heal a person that's blind and give them sight other than Jesus. And that's important because the Old Testament told us that one of the signs uh, of the Messiah would be that he would come and heal a blind and give them uh, sight. You notice when John the Baptist, if you know anything about the Bible, was in jail and he was kind of wondering, he was about to die for his faith and uh, he, he sent word to Jesus and said, hey, are you the one that was supposed to come? And the word that John, Jesus sent back to him was, tell John that the blind are seeing. And why did he say that? Because John the Baptist knew the Old Testament. He knew that if, if the blind were receiving their sight, then that meant that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was helping with that. And so that's what we see in John 9. It's an incredible passage, an incredible story. Uh, so I want to read it together, starting in verse uh, 1. So this is the Word of God. As he went along, that's Jesus, he saw a blind man uh, from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is an incredible question that the disciples bring up. This is really an age-old question. Anytime we see suffering in the world or we see somebody that's walking through uh, difficult situations that are beyond their control, a lot of times the first thing that comes to our mind is, God, why? God, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening Uh, to them. And so this is what the disciples are seeing. They see a man who was born blind, uh, and and which is just a terrible situation, specifically uh, in in this culture. To be born blind was to pretty much uh, be a beggar and to be uneducated and never be able to get a job, never have a family, to be really dishonored uh, from a social perspective and to uh, be an outcast. And that's what this man was. And so these disciples were looking at him saying, Jesus, like, what what happened that this man, what did he, what did he do that made him deserve uh, being blind for his whole life? And listen to how Jesus answers. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that's not the answer that most of us expected Jesus to have, right? But what Jesus says with the question that they're asking, God, why is this happening? 
he doesn't answer the question why. He redirects and begins to talk about not why is it happening, but how is God going to use this to display his glory to the world, which is important for us to understand. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him, that's the Father, who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, but while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, he made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now that's kind of weird. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. So this is the miracle. It's a, it's a very powerful, powerful story. And you really have to put yourself in the shoes of the man that was born blind. Think about it. I can maybe uh, empathize with this guy a little more than you can because without my contacts in, I am probably the blindest person uh, that you know in your life. I cannot read uh, even up to this close. My wife picks on me. Y'all should pray for her heart about that. Um, but I'm, I'm blind. But blindness is kind of one of those things that's really hard to imagine. Can you imagine being born into a world and never being able to see? Never seeing the light of the sun, never seeing the world, never seeing your parents, uh, never seeing anything. Basically just being born into a dark room and every room in the world that you walk into is dark and you can't see, you have to learn to hear and you have to learn to feel your way around in life. It's just a very difficult, difficult thing. But imagine that and, and experiencing that for a number of years and then one day a guy walks up to you and he spits in the dirt you don't think that much, you can't see, so you don't know what's happening. Um, and he, and he, he grabs something wet and off, I mean, you don't know he spits, you don't know what he's using, and he rubs it on your eyes, you know, and you're sitting here thinking like, what in the world is happening? And then he says, no, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam and I want you to wash, and he does. He listens and he goes and he washes and then boom, in an instant, he can see for the first time. For the first time, he sees light. For the first time, he sees people. He sees the green uh, trees and grass and the world as God created it, this beautiful sight. He sees people for the first time. You can imagine this man and how he must have felt. In an instant, his life was changed forever. Darkness to light, completely blind to 2020 vision, hopeless to hope. He actually had hope in life that now he could be a productive member of society. He could have a family. He could get a job. He could do the things that normal people do, from social outcast to accepted, from a beggar to a productive citizen, from honestly death physically to life, abundant life where he could live a normal life. It's an absolutely incredible transformation and the people knew who he was. So he had to be around and people had to know who he was and have seen him for quite some time because they start to notice. Listen to verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, but others came up and said, no, this only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked, which is really a terrible question to ask a blind man, right? He can't see. You don't know where they're at. I mean, it's a terrible question. 
I don't know, he said. And so we see the people, they're noticing the miracles, and they've got questions. They're asking questions. They're kind of doubting. Is this the same guy? Uh, is this the beggar that we're used to seeing? They're like, no, nah, I don't think it is. Maybe he's got a twin brother. This is his twin brother. Uh, but then some of them are, and he steps up and says, no, it is me. And they're like, well, what in the world happened? How did this happen? And he speaks up as simply as possible and says, listen, I was blind. A man named Jesus came. He rubbed something on my eyes. He told me to go wash in this pool, and now I can see. And that's what happened. And he's, they say, well, where's Jesus? And again, he's blind. He don't know where Jesus went. He never saw him, and he, he ain't going to see him until the end of the story. And he says, I don't know. I can't answer your questions, but what I do know is I was blind. Now I can see. This Jesus has changed my life. And so it, the story starts getting a little traction. And anytime uh, somebody's doing miracles and the story gets traction in the Bible, the religious people start stepping in. And so now we see the Pharisees show up because they got to put either their stamp of approval on it or their stamp of non-approval. So let's see what they have to say. Verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, which would have made the religious people mad because they believed that you could only, and they really took God's law out of context, they basically believed that uh, nobody could be healed on a Sabbath because they considered Sabbath uh, to, to be work. And so they're mad about uh, that. We've seen them mad about it before, but here they are again. Verse 15. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him uh, how he had received his sight. And again, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But then others asked, how could a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided among themselves. Then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that, they, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So again, they don't take him at his word. They're like, we need somebody to testify, go get his parents. And so they do. They bring the parents and they ask. Verse 19, is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know this is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how, can he, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Listen who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So that's the issue with the Pharisees. That's what we're about to see. This passage is as much about them as it is this blind man, that they had already made up their mind what they wanted to believe. And no matter what anybody told them, they were going to believe what they wanted to believe, even with God standing right in front of them. It's called spiritual blindness. Verse 23. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind, and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. So they want him to tell the truth now. It's more like they want him to tell him what they want to hear, correct? We know this man is a sinner, he replied. The blind man says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Maybe my favorite verse in the whole passage. Now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Right, of course, that pisses them off. Uh, it's kind of funny. You know, you get this blind man, he gets his sight back, and uh, he's like, well, why are y'all, why are you, like, can y'all not tell what just happened? I mean, why do y'all not believe this guy? It literally takes the blind man about 10 minutes talking to the Pharisees to realize their problem. They do not want to believe anything other than what they want to believe. Even with this man who's doing miracles on behalf of God in front of them, doing these great miracles, they still will not listen to him. And an uneducated man who's been a beggar all of his life can look at the situation and see it clearly for what it is. Verse 28. So then the Pharisees hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So we've seen this already in the book of John. They go back to Abraham and Moses. But what's Jesus already told them? If you were a disciple of Abraham last chapter, you would believe me because Abraham believed me. And then in John 5, he's already told them, if you were Moses' disciple, then you would believe me because Moses spoke of me. And so he's already disproved this, but they're going back to the fact that they're Moses' uh, disciple to try to claim some authority. He says, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. <laughs> this man, you can imagine. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Again, Pharisees are religious experts. Like they know the Bible better than anybody knows the Bible. And so he's sitting here saying, hey, what are you, what are you saying? This dude's done a miracle. I know the Old Testament says that the Messiah would come do uh, the miracles, but you're the religious leaders that know the Bible so much, and you're saying you don't know who he is? And so he, this is a blind man, a beggar, just sitting here de destroying these, these people. It's hilarious. Verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. And nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. I mean, this guy is pegging them. I mean, I'm telling you, this is an uneducated blind man who literally is making the most convincing argument. If I had two days to come up with an argument to go after these Pharisees and show them their spiritual blindness, this would be it. And he is coming right out of the gate. It has to be the Lord speaking uh, through him. I mean, it's a very convincing argument. In verse 34, how do they respond? I mean, he's hitting them right where, where it hurts. I mean, they got to do something with Jesus because he's, he's doing the things that God can only do. Verse 34, to this, the Pharisees replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out of the synagogue. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but for them, when you've been thrown out of the synagogue, that's a big deal. That's pretty much the whole social city at that point. You become an outcast. You can't buy food. You can't really even uh, survive in a lot of ways. You begin to go and live as a nomad uh, out there. And so, again, as he points all this stuff out, they just kind of resort to name-calling and basically say, whatever, dude, you're a sinner from birth, and you just need to get out of here, right? And so instead of believing, they just try to get rid of this guy. And so what do we see about the Pharisees? You can tell the Pharisees are blind. They, they, they literally can't see that Jesus is the promised Messiah because they don't want to see it, 
right? They're blinded in their self-righteousness. They think they're always right. Nobody has the authority or nobody has the ability to speak into their life, even God himself, the man that they say that they are representing. They're blinded by their pride, their self-importance, their self-sufficiency, and they refuse to believe the truth, and, and, and it's, it's so obvious, and they just cast this guy out of the synagogue. And before we move on, I think we can learn from this man. Like, he is an incredible witness for Christ. And so, so many people think to be a good witness for Christ, you have to know everything about the Bible. And, and, and one of the devil's biggest things he uses to paralyze us is he makes us think we have to know everything about the Bible before we talk to somebody about Jesus. But if we've learned anything from the book of John, some of the best witnesses for the gospel that end up starting revivals in cities and leading people to Christ are not people who know everything about the Bible. They are people who God has done a work in their life. And all they do is go and tell people what God has done in their life, right? We saw it in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. Remember, she was kind of uh, deep in her sin of, of adultery and was sleeping with a bunch of men and had five husbands and couldn't figure out why she wasn't satisfied. And Jesus comes, she gets saved. First thing she does is go into the city, the city that all knew her for all of her past sin, and she tells them what Jesus has done. Guess what happens in the city? Revival breaks out. Many people come to faith because of her testimony. We're seeing it again here. This guy gets saved. The first thing he does is begin to share his story with the Pharisees. And he, you see him go straight to mission. And so we can learn from him. And I want us to learn, even as a new convert that was facing intense pressure and bullying and intimidation, he did a couple things really, really well as a witness. And so I want to give you a couple of them. The first is... He appealed to the undeniable facts, right? Did you notice that? He focused on what he did know. They were wanting him to focus on everything he didn't know. He didn't know it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. He didn't know the doctrine of the Trinity. He didn't know all these things. What he knew was that he met a man named Jesus, and he was blind, and Jesus touched his eyes, and now he could see. And so what did he talk about? He talked about what God had done in his life. He shared his testimony. Not only that, but he answered them very directly and briefly. You know, one of the biggest issues with people when it comes to sharing their faith is they talk too much, right? The worst enemy of sharing your faith is talking too much, right? You can literally watch people when you're talking to them about Jesus. When you talk for more than about 15 minutes, their eyes just start to glaze over. But when you start by asking them questions, and just telling them short stories about what God has done in your life, usually they'll engage better with you. And you see he's brief, and he's, and maybe because he's uneducated, but he's just telling what he knows. Not only that, but he refused to argue. You know how many people I've led to Christ after I argued with them? Zero. Because usually if they're wanting to argue with me, what are they not wanting to do? They don't want to hear what I got to say. They want to defend and make sure that they're right. And so arguments never, that's not what he's trying to do. And then the last one is he remained fearless and resolved. They were about to kick him out of the synagogue. And he's like, bro, listen, I don't know what y'all's deal is. All I know is that I met a man named Jesus, and I was blind, and he touched my eyes, and now I see. And now I want to be his disciple, and you can be his disciple too. Right? That's, all, that's, he, he, that's his story, and he's sticking to it. You know what I mean? 
And for us, as we begin to try to share our story with others, we need to be able to share it in a way that's brief and precise and in a way that shows people that God has changed our life. It's important for us to be able to do that. And before I move on, I want you to understand this, that sometimes the greatest time in our lives to witness for Christ is immediately after God saves us. Right? And so if you're in this room and you have recently given your life to Christ and someone's told you or you feel like you're, you're not at a point where you can talk to someone else about what God's done in your life, I want you to see directly from Scripture that God wants to use you right now to go and share your story with other people. And most of the time, the people in our church that lead the most people to Christ are folks that literally just have gotten saved. I mean, I could show you, watch our baptism uh, services. When we do baptisms, many times one person gets baptized and they stay in the water and baptize the next person. Why? Because they got saved, somebody led them to Christ, and guess what they went and did? They went to their friend and said, hey, this Jesus stuff is real and this is what he's done in my life. You need to come too. Boom, they get saved, and guess who gets to baptize them? The person who led them to Christ. And you see it, just a testimony of what God can do when we begin to live as he wants us to live. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown this guy out. Listen, and so, and when he found him, I, I love this. Literally, they throw him out of the synagogue. This dude goes from a spiritual high to basically a spiritual low. Like he got saved into a church, God Delivered him, he's ready to follow Jesus. Next thing he knows, the church throws him out. He's got no food, nowhere to go, no home, no family, none of that. He's all out there. And guess who comes and finds him? Jesus. Ain't that cool? In the midst of his most difficult times in life, guess who went and sought him out? When he was blind and he was a beggar, who went to him? Jesus. When he got thrown out of the synagogue, guess who went to him? Jesus. What does that show us? That Christ comes to us. And Christ comes to us many times in our worst situations, and he finds us. And he said, when he found him, he said this, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Blind guy says, Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And then Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one that's speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and worship. And, and it says he worshiped him. And notice here, there's a belief between, or there's a correlation between belief and worship. They go hand in hand. When we believe that Christ is who he says he is, believe what he's done for us on the cross, our proper response is worship. Now, worship, what is worship? Is worship just singing songs when we're singing and worshiping God before the sermon? That's one way to worship. Is there another way to worship is when we give or we serve before God and we do it with the right motivation or sometimes when we open God's word and we're worshiping God by hearing the teaching of his word. And so worship is more than just singing. Worship is, is our whole life. It's a lifestyle. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, he says, worship is in view of God's mercy. When we see God for who he is and what he's done in the person of Jesus Christ, he says, we, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, meaning we lay our lives down and say, God, uh, I want to do what you want me to do, when you want me to do it. My life is in your hands. I want to live 
for you, that's the act of worship. And Paul goes on to say, uh, this is our only proper response. This is our proper act of worship. This is why at our church, when you see someone get baptized, we ask them two questions. The first question is, do you believe that Christ has done everything necessary to save you? And the answer, if you're a Christian, is yes. And then we follow that question up with another question that says, are you willing to go wherever he wants you to go and do whatever he wants you to do? Which is a worship question. Because if you truly believe that Christ is who he says he is, the proper response is to put your yes on the table and say, God, whatever you want from me, my life is in your hands. I want to live for you. That's why we do it. There's a correlation between belief and worship. When we see God for who he is, we lay our life at his feet and allow him to be the Lord of our life. Verse 39. And then Jesus goes on and says this. For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will, will become blind. It almost sounds like a riddle. Verse 40, but listen, he's talking to the Pharisees, and we can tell what he's saying by listening to their answer. So some of the Pharisees who were with him, they heard him say this, and they asked, What? Are we blind too? And so they're getting the message that Jesus is trying to help them understand. The Pharisees are blind, but they think they see. And so what Jesus tells them is, hey, some of the people in this world that think they see are actually the very people that are blind. Listen to verse 41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And so what Jesus is doing is turning his attention to these Pharisees and he concludes this story by going directly at them. Basically, what he's telling them is that there's two types of people in the world. There's those that see spiritually and those that don't see spiritually. There's those that recognize their sinfulness. They recognize their blindness. And they recognize their need for Christ and those that don't recognize their need for those. Even people that think they see but don't recognize their sin and don't recognize their blindness and don't recognize their need for Jesus, what Christ is saying to them is you think you see, but you don't see. Because if you saw, you would recognize that you're a sinner, that you're blind and wretched, and that you need Christ to save you and Christ to open your eyes to the gospel. And these Pharisees, you would think, would say, oh, wow, he's talking to us, but what do they do? And what they say, these Pharisees, literally, God is standing before them, Christ, and saying, I'm God, and I am telling you straight up, you are spiritually blind. You do not have spiritual eyes, because if you did, you would recognize me like Moses and Abraham did, and you would humble yourself before me, and you would admit your need for me, and you would surrender your life to me if you saw me for who I was. But because you don't, you are what I call spiritually blind. And there's a great truth in this passage for all of us in this room today. Because we've all been raised or currently are living in the part of a country, in, in, in part of this country, and part in an area where people are grandfathered into Christianity. Right, which is not even possible, but this is kind of how our society works. And so uh, a lot of us in this room uh, were Christians because we were raised in a Christian household. Right? It was uh, socially acceptable to be a Christian. 
Sometimes being a Christian uh, made people think I was a good person and made people trust me more, got me kind of where I wanted to go. He's a good kid. He's a Christian kid. Uh, he's going to do that. Or some of us see Christian as a means to help us gain things in life. And because of that, because there's no persecution, because we don't have to stand up to anything when we become a Christian, Christianity just kind of becomes a word. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it gives me something. You know, but if it don't, it's not that big of a deal to kind of not live that way. But then you look at the lives of people, and what you start to see is there's no evidence that anybody's eyes are open at all. Right? So I say I'm a Christian, but then when you begin to examine the lives of people, they live their lives as if Christ doesn't matter. And so what we see happening here with the Pharisees is pretty much the same thing. They say that they're religious leaders and that they believe the Bible. But then when they're face to face with God and he's telling them, hey, this is not what this is about. I am Christ and you should recognize me and follow me and I'm the Savior that came to save you. They literally look at him like he's an idiot. And the greatest obstacle to true belief in the Bible Belt where we live is false belief that we, have already, we already have the salvation that Jesus is offering the Pharisees right here. So many of us in this room, we believe that we have something that there's no evidence in our life that shows we have. And listen, I'm not telling you that to condemn you. I'm telling you that to say most of us in this room, including myself, relate more with the Pharisees than we relate with the blind man. Specifically, when we were saved, we did. And so we need to see and we need to be open to the fact that God may be using this passage to show us that we're spiritually blind. And so that's what I want to spend some time on today. It's showing you four truths in this passage that I think will help all of us. There are some truth bombs in this passage that are uh, very deep, but I'm going to try to cover a few of them here. So the first is this. From the question that the disciples ask at the beginning of this passage, I want to give you a truth. The first one's this. God doesn't waste our suffering. He uses it. God doesn't waste our suffering. He actually uses it. So we see at the beginning of this passage that the disciples are asking a great question about suffering, probably a question that many of us have asked before in our life. They're asking, who sinned to cause this man's blindness? Was it something he did? Or was it something that his parents did? And now this is a pretty normal ideology. It's called karma, right? So if you did something bad here, then God comes back and repays you with something bad on the other side. Sounds great. Makes a lot of sense. It's just not in the Bible, right? It's a Hindu philosophy. That's what they believe. You live a bad life the first time around, you come back as something worse because of how you lived. It's a kind of a retribution or a cause and effect kind of thing. But that's not what we see here, is it? Notice how Jesus answers this question. He redirects them from why is this happening to God's purpose in the suffering that he, this guy is facing. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened, this blindness happened from a birth so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And it's not just here that we see this in the Bible. This is a pretty consistent theme in Scripture when it comes to the topic of suffering. Instead of asking God, why is this happening? It seems like God wants us asking this question. 
what is God trying to do in this suffering? Right? Because it's important for us to ask the right question. It doesn't mean we can't ask the why question, but it might just mean that we never get the answer for the why. But what we do get an answer for is what God is trying to do with suffering uh, in our lives. And this is a good thing for all of us to think about because we live in a broken, fallen world. And if you have not embraced or if you have not faced suffering in your life, when I say suffering, I'm meaning something bad that happens to you that's beyond your control, then you will. It is inevitable. Every person in this room will face some form of suffering on this earth. And it doesn't mean we have to look for it. It doesn't mean that if somebody else faces it and we don't, that they're worse than us. It's just a part of a broken and fallen world. Sinful people do sinful things that cause sinful. This whole world is broken because of sin, and we live in it. And sometimes we get caught in the crossroads of it, and suffering happens in our life. And Scripture doesn't uh, stay silent about this, right? And so many churches don't talk about it. And so then bad things happen in people's lives, and they turn away from God because they think God's doing this to punish them. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see a God that comes to us in our suffering, that meets us there. We see a God that has a purpose in our suffering. And we see many times Scripture shows us quite clearly what God is doing in our suffering. God uses our suffering to grow us, to grow us in our, in our relationship with Him, to produce perseverance in us, to refine our faith like Gold, Peter says, being refined by the fire is what difficulty and persecution and suffering do in our lives to make us more like him. I've heard somebody say this before. We're never more like Christ than when we're suffering. Because think about it. The picture we get of Christ in the Bible is not a Christ sitting on the beaches of the Caribbean in a lounge chair, is it? No, it's a Christ on a cross taking the worst form of punishment that was known in the world for the sake of us, a suffering servant, Isaiah says. And so as we begin to follow Christ, don't you know that we will begin to experience some of the same things? So he, he does it. He uses suffering to make us more like him, and he uses suffering to display his glory in our lives and through our lives. We see it all throughout the Bible, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials and suffering of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Paul in Philippians 1.29, listen. He says, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And then Acts 5.41, we see the early believers in the midst of their persecution and suffering. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name of Christ. And again, this is important for us to talk about. Listen, how much, how terrible of a pastor would I be if I don't prepare you to face things in life that are gonna come to you. 
Like the word of God is not silent about this. The word of God wants us to understand that we're in a fallen, we're in a broken world, and suffering and persecution is inevitable for all of us. Now, it doesn't mean we're all going to face the same kind, but it means that we all will face it. And when it comes, knowing the word of God and experiencing the presence of God is what is going to help us get through it. Whether it's cancer or death or, or, or someone we love closely, uh, dying criticism, depression, anxiety, whatever kind of suffering that you're facing, it's important that we know the word of God and that we know that the presence of God is available to us. And for those of us who are in the midst of suffering right now, I want you to see, I want to remind you of this truth that I showed you a while ago in this passage, that while this man was in his deepest darkness suffering, blind from birth, who showed up? Christ, because he comes near to us in our suffering. When he was cast out of the synagogue, everybody had left him for dead. He was the only one out there. Who came to him? Christ. And I can tell you story after story after story after story. I don't have time, but many people in this room can testify to it. When you're at the worst moment of your life, when you have no control and things have just gone out of control, is when the presence of God becomes so real in your life, more real than probably ever before. And when you think God is the most out of control, what we see is he's accomplishing his greatest work. How do we know that? Let's look at the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and being killed by the people that he came to save, and we're sitting there thinking like, and he, Jesus has got to be thinking like, what, what is happening? The very people that I'm trying to save and rescue are now killing me and putting me on a cross. It seemed like, how would God do something like this? But what was God accomplishing? Salvation of all mankind. The greatest feat that he would ever accomplish was being accomplished when he seemed the most out of control. So here's the question. How does this truth change the way that you will face suffering in your own life? How does it change? What does it change knowing that suffering in our lives is inevitable? But when we know the truth of God's word, it changes everything. It changes how we walk through suffering because we don't lose hope, because we know God's working. Even when we don't feel it or even when we don't see it, we see suffering is an opportunity for us to grow and to, to, for our faith to be refined. We allow suffering not to push us away from God, but to draw us near to God. We choose to glorify God in our suffering rather than waste it in self-pity. doesn't make it easy, but it makes it worth it because we know God is working. We don't lose hope because we know God's in it and he's with us and he's working. And like the disciples, we can begin to say, blessed are those who suffer for Jesus' sake. We consider it pure joy when we face trials and suffering of many kinds. We rejoice because we were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. May God help us be a people, a church that responds the way the disciples responded in the midst of suffering. So truth number one, God doesn't waste our suffering. He uses it. Number two, the only thing worse than physical blindness is spiritual blindness. The second truth we see in this passage, and I believe it's really the main point of the entire passage, is that the, the only thing worse than physical blindness that this man was experiencing is the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. And if you think about it, this story comes off the back end of one of Jesus' I am statements, which is, I am the light of the world. And what the light of the world does is expose darkness and blindness. 
right? And so when we come into the light, we see things the way Christ sees things, which is his goal. And so what we see happening is God is giving a living, breathing illustration to these blind Pharisees. And he's doing it through the healing of this blind man. And physically what's happening in the life of this blind man is a spiritual message to the Pharisees. And here's the thing that you'll learn about Christ, not that his healings aren't a big deal, but Christ is always worried more about your spiritual condition than he is your physical condition. Why? Because even if this man could see for the rest of his life, if he missed Jesus, it would be a temporary fix because he would die. But because this man found Christ and he was healed spiritually, it was an eternal fix. Now not only could he see, but he could see for eternity because he would be with Jesus alive forever. So when you learn about Christ, what you'll see is anytime he did a physical miracle, most of the time it was to testify about a spiritual reality that he was putting forth for the people. And the spiritual message in this specific miracle is this, that we are all born blind and we all need Jesus to open our eyes. And so we gotta ask a question. What is spiritual blindness? Like you cannot read this passage and not ask that question. What is spiritual blindness and am I spiritually blind? Because listen, we're talking about people that know the Bible and have been to more church services than everybody in this room. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, hey, y'all have missed it, you're blind. And so for us to read this passage and not examine our own lives would be an injustice to what Jesus wants out of this passage. And so I think the best way to answer this question, what is spiritual blindness, is by looking at what is spiritual sight. Let's contrast it. So when Jesus opens someone's eyes in the Bible, spiritually saves them, a few things happen in Scripture. The first is a person whose eyes are open spiritually, they see their sin, right? We see our sin. That's the first characteristic of your eyes being open. And now I'm not talking about like seeing sin in a broad manner. Pretty much everybody in this city that I go to and ask, are you a sinner? Have you made mistakes? Would say, absolutely. I'm broken. I'm a hot mess express, whatever word you want to use, right? Um, uh, Bless his heart, you know, all this different stuff. We all know that. But when God opens our eyes, what happens is sin begins to be personal to us. It goes from this broad, general term to, no, I'm a sinner. Specifically, I'm an idolater. I've turned from God. I've worshiped things more than God. And our sin begins to be specific. And it begins to be so specific that we begin to see that it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. And that when he was on the cross, it wasn't just about the sins of the world, It was about my sin and the sins that I'd committed and the things that I've done. And it was that that nailed him to the cross. And when somebody begins to see this, what happens is it starts to do a work deep down in their hearts so that when they sing songs about the amazing grace of God, they can't sing it without tears filling their eyes and saying, that's the grace I needed. I was blind but God allowed me to see. They can't come and take communion and see the body of Christ being broken in front of them and and eat it without thinking about their own sin that broke the body of Christ on the cross and their own sin that the blood of Christ was spilt for 
on the cross, it begins to be personal. And when somebody's eyes have been opened, when they talk about the cross, it begins to be a personal thing to them that moves them, that does something deep down in their heart. Secondly, not only do they see their sin, but they see their need for Jesus. Because listen, when we see our sin and we see that there's nothing we can do to change the heart that we have that wants to do what we want to do when we want to do it, that literally enslaves us for our entire life, and there's nothing we can do to change it. When we see the posture of our life is sin, and that only Christ can deliver us from that, we begin to need Christ. And the problem with religion is religion teaches you you don't need Jesus because you can do it on your own. You just come to church. You just read your Bible. You just do some good things. Just try to make more good things than bad things. And, but the problem with that is that ain't what you need. You need heart surgery. You need something only Christ can do, which is to make you new, which is to open your eyes to who he is and what he's done and change your heart at the deepest level. And when we see our need for Christ, guess what we do? We start treasuring Christ. We start talking about Christ in a way that's passionate. We start telling people about Jesus in a way that, man, I'll, you can have everything this world has to offer. I'll just give me Jesus because he's what I need. He's what I need. Not only do we see and treasure Jesus, but we uh, surrender and follow him because when we see him for who he is, that we're created by God for God and that our purpose and our identity and everything we have in this world is wrapped up in him, we say, the only proper response I have is to lay my life down. God, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do in my life is what I want because your plans for my life are better because you created me. So it leads to surrender and to follow him wholeheartedly. And then what happens is initially those are the things that happen when our eyes are open. And then we go into this process where our eyes, the more we learn about God, the more we know about him, the more we begin to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. And so the way you know that somebody's eyes have been opened is they begin to grow to be more like Christ. And the things that break the heart of God break their heart. And the things that God loves, they love. Namely, God the Father and people and the mission of God. They begin to, their affections begin to stir for those things. So now on the opposite end, a spiritually blind person would be the opposite. They don't see their sin. They may see it in a general sense, but when it comes to their specific sin, they don't see it, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm wretched. I, you know, they use these broad terms, but when it comes to, I'm a, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. You know, they don't see that before God, their sin is deserving of death, and it was their sin that put Christ on the cross. Because of that, they don't see their need for Christ. Because they don't see their need for Christ, they don't treasure Christ. Because they don't treasure Christ, they don't lay their life down and worship him and follow him wholeheartedly. They usually play one foot in, one foot out. And then lastly, they don't love the things that God loves, and they don't hate the things that God hates. And that's how we know, because we see literally the Pharisees right in front of us, and we see God's greatest gift to them, and they don't see it, they don't treasure it, they don't lay their life down for him, and they don't even want it. And the worst part about being spiritually blind is that you don't realize you're spiritually blind. But when we come face to face with Christ and we encounter him, our eyes begin to open because we see the light of the world exposes darkness. It exposes our blindness, which is truth number three. Only Jesus can open blind eyes. 
and this is humbling news, but it's also great news. Because the great news of the gospel is that Jesus is willing. Right? He's not exclusive. He's inclusive. His invitation throughout the whole Bible, throughout the whole letter of John is come to me. Like he literally, for every person in this room, he wants to open your eyes, your spiritual eyes. Think about it. John 5, the 38-year paralytic, Jesus walks up to him. What's his question? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Because he's willing. I'm willing is what he says. I'm willing. This is literally why Jesus came to earth and died on a cross. It's why Jesus ascended and went back to heaven to pour out his spirit on all of us that would believe. Jesus desires to open the spiritual eyes of every person in this room. And here's the reality. It starts with us realizing that there's no other way. It starts with us realizing that nothing else can open our eyes. Nothing else can do what Christ can do for us. Religion can't open our eyes. Knowledge, Bible knowledge can't open your eyes. Serving enough, giving enough, doing enough religious things can't do it. Only Christ can do it. When we see Christ and see him for who he is and what he's done for us, we see our blindness, we believe him, we receive his word, and we receive him as Lord and Savior. And the Bible says in an instant, we're made a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We get new life. We get new direction. We get new desires. We get a new purpose. We get a new heart. We get new eyes. We get a new spirit. I love how Ezekiel talks about this. Literally says, in the new covenant, when we give our life to Christ, God puts a new spirit, a new heart in us, and this spirit causes us to love the things of God. Do you know some Christians that just hate the things of God? They're not a Christian. Because the Spirit of God in us is what causes us to love the things of God. You don't have to go to church anymore. When the Spirit's in you, you get to. You don't have to serve anymore. When the Spirit of God's in you, you get to serve God. You get to be a part of His purposes. This is what the heart of God in us does. Everything changes. It's literally like a blind man seeing for the first time. It's like a light bulb that just clicks on. And for the first time, you can see everything in this world that you've never seen before, namely Christ and what he created it for. So here's my question. Has Jesus opened your eyes? And listen, it's a question that every person in this room has to answer. Not about the person to the right or left of you. Has Jesus opened your eyes? Has there ever been a moment where God made you a new creation? Where that aha moment happened? New heart, new eyes. You begin to see the world through the lens of Christ. Because listen, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, this is our story. We were blind, but now we see. I don't care if you got the worst testimony in history or the best testimony in history. Our testimony together as the body of Christ is that we were blind and now we can see. We just sang it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I can see. And the fourth truth, and I couldn't end without showing you this because it's just incredible. Did you notice the meaning of the name of the pool that Jesus sent the blind man to? It was Siloam, but it said in there that Siloam meant something. What did it mean? Sent. So my fourth truth is that saved people live sent. Because if you think about it, what Christ did is he saved this man 
and he healed him. And then he baptized him in the sending water of Siloam. And think about that. We have a statement we say here all the time, save people, live sin. Why do we say it? Because we believe every person in the kingdom of God has a purpose. That God doesn't save anybody to sit on the sideline. This whole idea that you can be saved and just sit in the chairs or sit in the pew and not do anything, that's not biblical. It's American Christianity, only in America. Can we sit tight and try to be in the kingdom but not be a part of what the kingdom's about? And so when you see in the Bible, when we see these stories of Christ saving people and saving people and saving people, one of the first things that you should notice is that saved people begin to live on the mission of God. Like immediately, woman at the well, what happens? Saved, where does she go? To the town, start revival. This man, saved, what's the first thing he wants to do? Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And every story, every encounter, that's what you're going to see. So here's the question. Are you living sins? Because the primary fruit of saving faith is the mission of God being present in your life. Because when you experience the grace of God, listen to me. You want every person in this world that you love to experience it. Because there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. How much would you have to hate a person to sit and watch them live their life towards death and destruction and not tell them about the cure that you've just found? You'd have to hate them. And so listen, I don't know where you're at this morning, but here's what I know. I've been praying that God would open spiritual eyes this morning of of many people in this room. And listen, if you're here and you've been in church your entire life, you're a prime candidate. Maybe this morning you've seen, you're like the Pharisees. Jesus is right in front of you. But he's not in you. And this morning he wants to be in you. He wants to open your eyes. He wants to make the things of God not just something you do, but who you are. And I pray this morning you'd say yes to him. And maybe you're in this room and you're, you're a Christian. And maybe your next step this morning is, when's the last time you shared your story with somebody? When's the last time that you sat down with somebody in your life and you said, man, let me just tell you about what Christ has done for me. I don't know if you have time. I don't even know if you care. But listen, I can't not tell you about this because I love you and I want you to experience the same thing. And maybe God's placing somebody on your heart this morning. You know you need to go talk to them. I pray that you would leave today and understand that the gospel demands a response in our life. It demands. Maybe it's salvation for you. Maybe it's going to share. Maybe it's just to respond in worship and thank God for opening your eyes thank you for what he's done in your life. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. So if you're here today and you're in this room and you say, Billy, today's the day of salvation for me. I believe God is opening my eyes for the very first time. I see that I'm created by God for God. And I want to embrace that in my life. I want to live for him. I want to turn from living for myself and turn to God. And I want to receive him into my life. If that's you this morning, I want you to be bold. I want you to lift your hand right where you are. I want to pray for you. Anybody in this room? You say, Billy, that's me. That's me. Raise it high. Anybody in this room? Amen. Anybody else? Give me a second. 
So, Father, that's our prayer this morning. God, would you do work in the hearts of your people? God, would you move in us to become who you've called us to become? Lord, we're so thankful that you've opened our eyes. So, God, would you keep our eyes fixed on you? God, would you give us opportunities to share what you've done in us with other people? And, God, would you continue to draw people to yourself and use us for your kingdom? So, God, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing?